Roger Hines is a name that's come up a number of times on this show recently. So I figured that this was the time that we should interview the man himself, strike while the iron's hot as he's just come off of two wins at the Icons of Foam shaping competition at the boardroom show. And Roger's been involved with and worked alongside the most well-known board builders in the industry, starting in California and Hawaii in the early 70s through Japan, Brazil, and today, back in California. All of his peers regard Roger as one of the most talented craftsmen in surfboard building. But Roger's story has never really been captured. He doesn't have an entry on the Encyclopedia of Surfing. There's been no real big profile pieces in any of the mainstream magazines. He's just quietly maintained his focus on building surfboards for the last 40 years. In an era of shameless self-promotion, Roger is the anti-hero. He reluctantly Instagrams, but he doesn't have a Facebook nor a Twitter account. He just quietly toils away, basically, building surfboards from beginning to end with one pair of hands, as he likes to say. Seven days a week. Roger and his wife, Christy, are the only workers in his 2,000-square-foot factory. There's one shaping bay, one sanding room both occupied by Roger, and there's six laminating racks. He's in his early 60s, and his workday often starts at 4 a.m. He really could easily staff his factory with young shapers and glassers who are just eager to glean some of his wisdom, but he doesn't. He's a perfectionist. Quality is paramount at Roger Hines' surfboards, and the only person's work whose quality is consistently and sufficiently high is Rogers. It's a niche in the market that Roger is happy to fulfill. It means he doesn't have to meet high volume demands and he can kind of cherry pick his work and his clients largely allow him to build what he desires. Roger's name has recently bubbled into the public's awareness outside of the core of the industry just due to him winning this Icons of Foam shaping competition for the second year in a row. And in this competition, the competitors had 90 minutes to recreate a classic 1984 Aki model Rusty Thruster. Rusty himself, along with his son Clint, judged the final boards and he deemed Roger the winner handily. So we will get to that point in the story a little bit later, but let's begin at the beginning of Roger's timeline in Southern California in the late 60s. This is David Scales. Welcome to Surf Splendor. I was born in Ventura and I grew up in Paramount, which is inland Lakewood, Long Beach area. I started surfing in 66 when I was 12 years old. Okay. And um, Were you, your parents just drive you to the beach, or no? Actually, my grandparents had a place down in in Newport Beach, um, uh, down by Blackie's area, and that was actually the first place I surfed. I didn't know it as Blackie's at the time, but it was yeah. Newport Pier on the north side. And I tried to haul out some nine or ten foot board that was you know, twice as big as me. And yeah. What was your awareness of surfing at the time? Was it in, like, mainstream media? My brothers, my older brother was surfers, and then they got shot off to Vietnam. And so that's kind of got me going. Oh, okay. They started surfing in the early 60s. Okay. So they left their boards and stuff behind? Yeah, there was, uh, that was just a treasure trove of boards in the mid to late 60s. Everybody was gone. Okay. And, I mean, they were everywhere. And that was at the time... Uh, 68 was when uh, the boards were being chopped down in size really quick. I mean, overnight, foot and a half, two feet off the board. Okay. So a couple of friends of mine from school at the time thought it would be a good idea to grab up some of these boards and see what we could do with them. Okay. And that was kind of the, uh, the start of it, just stripping them down and getting going. That was the start of your surfboard construction career, basically? Yeah. Or deconstruction, I guess. Yeah, just taking <laughs> taking them apart and putting them back together. But it was definitely a learning curve because of uh, you weren't invited into people's factories at the time to 
see what was going on and there was no internet to where you could go on YouTube and right. find out how to laminate a board or do a cut lap that was worth a shit. Right. And uh, so it was pretty pretty bad at best. Okay. The boards were? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, they were they were horrible. I'm sure of it. I don't remember but what what board were you riding talking about that Blackie's experience? Do you remember? Yeah, the first board I got was uh I bought it from a <laughs> A guy in Paramount for 25 bucks, and it ended up, I went to school with him, a guy named Alan Zamboni, who uh, his father or grandfather invented the ice rink machine. They lived down the street from me. No way. Yeah, it was pretty cool. That's a piece of history. Yeah. Had the machine already been invented at that time? <sighs> like, was he wealthy at that time? or No, we were all pretty poor. Okay. We lived in a pretty poor, poor area. I don't know. Uh... I assume it wasn't invented at the time. I had no no knowledge of it. Yeah, but uh, I believe it was a uh, uh, Harbor Banana. I oh, think really? I bought it for twenty five bucks. Really? Yeah, I believe wow. that's what it was. Is that the one that you ultimately ended up cutting down? No, no, I don't remember where that one ended up. I, I think I you know I tell you the truth, I don't remember what the the ones were that we started on. But we were pretty stupid because we got into a board one day and started peeling it apart. And, man, this thing is hard. It ended up being a wood board. You know, a lot of boards were colored. Oh. So you couldn't tell. It should have been a flag when you the board weighed, you know, 60 pounds. Right. Probably pretty stupid, though. Yeah. But, uh, but I remember trying to do a really wide V-bottom, the first, first couple, that type of thing, transition board. Yeah. I don't remember what size they were. It was it was pretty primitive at best. Um, talking about there wasn't a lot of information out there to to follow the mechanics of actually how to build or deconstruct a board. There's also probably no information about board design. You know, talking about a V bottom or whatever else you might be trying to build. What were um, what was your understanding of kind of the hydrodynamic principles of board design? Nothing. Okay. It, so, what would you try to build? What do you? What goal are you trying to achieve? I would. I would see uh, something that was being built by a manufacturer, and I would think, well, let's give that a try. Okay. So it's just trial. Take it out in the water, ride it, and then yeah. see how it works. Basically. Yeah. yeah. Wow. None of us were very accomplished surfers at the time, so if it went straight to the beach, right, that, that was pretty much an achievement. Okay. When I did that interview with Malcolm Campbell, he was talking about. I was under the impression that like a better surfer will, will give you better feedback on a board, but he was kind. Of, he said it's kind of the opposite where he and his brother weren't that great of surfers. So if there was an improvement in the board, it mattered drastically to them. Like they would see that effect really significantly. Yeah, yeah. You know? No, I, I can I can see that. Over the years, you know, I'm I'm not an, an accomplished surfer by any means, but. Uh, I could feel how the board went through the water, mm-hmm. and I could tell what the differences were. I knew what worked for me, but um, I was able to make some boards for some really good surfers through my career that brought back some really good feedback. Yeah, that feedback also helps, Yeah. in addition to writing it. Where where were you surfing at that time when you first started building boards? We're in the late 60s. You talked about Blackies. Um, what was the scene like in Southern California? What were the beaches like? Where were you surfing? I think it was probably Bolsa Chica, which at that time was called Tin Can Beach. Okay. And it was just a wide open sand beach that uh, you had to park on Pacific Coast Highway, so you couldn't see the waves. There was no parking spots or anything, and it was pretty uh, abandoned during okay. that time, and you could go there and, and surf. Why did they call it Tin Can Beach? don't know. That's what it was called, though, okay. probably because it had a crap load of tin cans on it, I would imagine. Yeah. It was, it, uh, yeah, that was what it was called, though. And then the cliff area, which was called Five Wells at the time because there was five oil wells up on top. Mm-hmm. Back then, there was no parking spots along there, no lots anyway, where you could just have your run of it. Yeah. It was pretty wide open. I think the name spots, the pier and river jetty and all that were pretty, pretty crowded. Okay. Well, crowded for that time, which right. is nothing. What were the were the waves any different back then, or are the spots still kind of the same today? Yeah, I don't, I don't think it's changed much. I remember 
Before I went to Hawaii in late 71, I remember surfing out at the river jetty and there was a pier there and it was to load uh, machinery and stuff like that. So there was a pier at River Jetty proper there and and so that would break up the swells. There would be some pretty pretty good size soft swells that would come through and that would break it up and that later was taken apart. They what happened to it? The no, act? No. I, it's just they just chopped it off and huh. under the ocean. Interesting. Yeah. I've never seen that. So you talked about going to Hawaii in seventy one. What was the reasoning behind that? I wanted to surf and and I had every interest in going to Hawaii and and surfing and uh, I went over there with a friend the first time and we camped out at a Puena Point by Haleiwa and I, we were there for I think six months and um, must have got there in late 71, November, December, but um, you camped, I took a board. Yeah, we camped, camped for six months straight? Oh yeah. yeah. Wow. Would no, there were showers right there at Haleiwa. Okay. Yeah, you know, back then, there wasn't a lot of people on the North Shore yeah. uh, compared to what it is now. And if you just kind of stayed under the radar, you were fine. Okay. If you were looking for trouble, you were definitely going to find it. Sure. Um, prior to getting to Hawaii, you were building boards. Is that how you were making a living? No. Prior to going to Hawaii, I wasn't making boards for a living. I was just doing whatever I could, jobs to okay. get to Hawaii. Okay. Um, no, I wasn't building boards. Well, when I got to Hawaii, I'd actually taken a board with me that I had made here. But I got there and wrote it a few times and realized that I needed to change up a bit. So I went into, uh, I think there was a, uh, a list of phone numbers at Country Surfboards of boards for sale, that type of thing. And I ended up getting an eight-something Jim Turner, okay. who was really famous at the time. I don't know his name at all. Yeah. Maybe I'm naive, but... Now, if you had a Turner gun in the early 70s on the North Shore, you were crapping in tall cotton. He was a great shaper, Plastic Fantastic. I know Plastic Fantastic, yeah. okay. And uh, it's funny because uh, later on in life, Jim and I have become great friends. Really? Yeah, he lives on Kauai now. And, and um, yeah, so I had that board and I rode it into the dirt. And uh, But during that, that first stay, I was there with a friend who actually ran into one of the shapers who worked at Country at the time, named Leroy Dennis, and he wanted to have him shape him a board. So I went over there and was watching him shape a board, and it was one evening at Country, and uh, somebody was in there glassing, and and it was like a light went on. Hmm. You finally got a chance to watch somebody work, and it was just like, Holy mackerel. Everything started to connect the dots at that point. Glassing a surfboard is just a procedure. Okay. Um, I start in the same place. I finish in the same place every time. It might be different for somebody else, but when I glass a surfboard, I don't care what it is. It's a procedure to me. Mm. I look at the temperature, I catalyze it, and I go like hell. Okay. Um, There's no creative expression in glassing. Well, there's definitely when you're doing abstracts or or art, artsy style boards like that. Yeah, you definitely slow it down a bit. And but as far as just glassing a ten foot red gun or a six foot clear sand finish, to me it's just a procedure. Okay. Roger had been camping in Hawaii for six months in the early 70s, but he hadn't been working. Through that initial experience at Country Surfboards, Roger saw an opportunity to turn his vacation into perhaps a way of life. But prior to that, he was just living off the money he had earned in California, doing odd jobs. If you went to the North Shore in 71 with a thousand bucks, you could stay the whole year. Do you keep your money in a bank, or do you keep it on you? I mean, I, how does that work? I'm trying to think how we did that. I think we took traveler's checks. Yeah, we took okay. traveler's checks. Okay. So there's a little bit of security there. Like I said, if you flew under the radar, nobody was there to bother you. Okay. It was the North Shore. I mean, you, yeah. it was a perfect place to be in that time. 
Vietnam was just getting over and everybody was just uh, happy to be anywhere. Who were you surfing with around that time? Was I mean, the first time out at Sunset Beach, it was like all these guys who had been in the magazines, all of a sudden they're dropping in and you're paddling by. It was, it was pretty, uh, pretty nice experience. Who do you remember being impressed by? Jesus, everybody. Right. Everybody. Uh, first time out at Sunset, I think. I remember Sam Hawk being out there in, in uh, Reno. The Icaos. Um, I don't know. Everybody rare. I mean, anybody who was anybody was surfing out there, and um, it was fantastic. How did it feel being a Californian and um, being used to California waves, and then paddling out of a place like that? Was it as intimidating as one might imagine? Yeah. Yeah. And with those personalities in the water too, what's your what's your approach? You just kind of sit on the shoulder, or what yeah, I, I just kind of stayed out of the way. Okay. And it just, I just kind of stayed out of the way and then just jumped in there whenever there was a free one available. And, mm -hmm. But yeah, it was, it wasn't intimidating to watch them or they didn't make it intimidating to me because there must have been another 50 guys out there just like me. Okay. But um, it was the great, it was great to be part of the show. Mm -hmm. It was, a, it was a wonderful experience to be out there for the first couple of times just going, wow, it's pretty impressive. Yeah. And then you get mowed over by an eight-foot West Peak, and then everything snaps back into reality. Yeah. <laughs> so you find yourself at Country Surfboards, seeing a board being built, and you kind of recognize that light bulb moment and your life's going to change. Direction. Yeah. Yeah, at that point it was just, I have to be in Hawaii. and. Um, Were you planning on going home prior to that? Yeah, by that time money was getting uh, a little low, so it was time to go. Okay. But... Um, for the life of me, I came back here, and I don't know what I did for work, probably construction or something, to earn enough money to get back over there. And then when I got there, made a run at it again, and this time uh, got into a house with a, a friend who I knew from over here, who was a photographer, okay. and he actually shot some... Um, he was just finishing up his military stint, and... He was part-time photographer, I believe it was for surfing magazine, Gary Terrell. So I grabbed a room at his place, and there it was. I just went off and found some work, working construction, and then working with boards whenever it was available. Hines started at the bottom of the totem pole. Dick Brewer and Lightning Bolt were the two big labels on the North Shore at the time, but they also had worldwide demand. There were plenty of other talented craftsmen on the North Shore, some of whom would moonlight for those brands, but the only way to learn surfboard construction was through hands-on experience. You know, the whole lightning bolt thing was genius. They brought in, under one umbrella, the best shapers and glassers. And it was, it was amazing, the quality of board that was there. Um, I know before that, the whole surf line thing was, was doing well. Uh, they had some, a lot of boards coming from surf line that, that was really high quality. Um, but the lightning bolt thing, yeah, they had a whole roster of guys that were just incredible. I had access to Kent Smith. I had access to uh, uh, a couple different guys, Jeff Edwards, Ed Angulo. Mm -hmm. But that... Uh, that whole deal with the lightning bolt thing, they really built a lot of nice boards. Yeah. It was pretty incredible. The word factory on the North Shore was kind of a loose term at that time because okay. if you had a garage with one down rack, you were definitely a big deal. Okay. Um, there was a lot of people to draw from over there. There wasn't a place that I had to show up every day and, and do anything. There was a lot of people to draw from. Kent Smith, um, who had a place at, down by the pipeline with a guy named Jeff Edwards. I learned a lot watching, watching that go on. Just really, 
again in a garage. It was amazing the work that came out of places like that. Yeah. And I know there was guys um, in Cavella Bay. There was guys building glass and a lot of boards down there. Steve Cranston, um, Steve Sales, who actually works for uh, Fiberglass Hawaii now. Yeah. Sander back then. Mm-hmm. So a small community of guys just building boards. I had no ambition. I wanted to be there to surf. This was a means to buy food and pay rent. Okay. And when that would dry up, because most of the boards would be built during the, the winter months, mm-hmm. and then during the summer months, you'd go work construction. Mm-hmm. So you just, at that time, I had no ambition. I was just there to surf. Okay. I didn't want to uh, do anything, actually, other than surf and just pay my bills. Well, it seems like you said, though, it was kind of a light bulb moment. So was there any, I would think there's a little bit of a passion for the building process. Or it was, it was a, just it was a, a means to an end. It was a light bulb moment because I had nothing to draw from when I first started uh, deconstructing and putting them back together. Uh, there would be somebody you could ask, hey, would, you know, you've seen this done, but... When, once you saw it done in person a couple times, you understood, okay, this is the benchmark right here. You want to start and just go and get better and better. Right. Now, I really did. There was, you know, there was no, I uh, didn't really have uh, any ambition at that time to be a surfboard builder or a construction worker. It was just whatever it was to pay the bills, I did. And surf as often as possible. Every damn day. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great time to be out on the North Shore. Yeah, it seems like it. It's like a golden era. You were looking for people to surf with most of the time. Really? Well, not at some of the big name spots, but you could surf the out of the way places pretty much by yourself. So you're actually looking for companions to paddle out with? Yeah. That's a crazy concept in Southern California. It's the exact opposite nowadays. As Roger's work experience grew, so did his reputation for quality and attention to detail. He also spent so much time in the water that he found himself sharing waves with and eventually building boards for some of Hawaii's finest surfers. I've made boards for a few guys that were pretty instrumental. Jock Sutherland, who obviously is a very accomplished surfer, who who liked the boards and we did real well together. And then Mike Armstrong, who's no slouch mm-hmm. at a place called the Pipeline. Mm-hmm. And he's we've been best friends for a lifetime and he uh, he still rides the boards to the, this day. Yeah. Um, talking about Pipeline, what was your first experience with that wave? Well, I was never accomplished out there at best. I, I you know, some of the smaller days. Mm-hmm. It was pretty uncrowded. Uh, on the smaller days, nobody would really care about it. And how small are we talking? Yeah, like five, six, eight feet, something like that. Like head high at least. Yeah, ceiling high, whatever. Yeah. And it, um, you know, I ran into uh, the bottom out there a couple of times. That wasn't pleasant. No. <laughs> Did you sustain any in your injuries or stories? Oh, yeah. No, I've got, I've got cuts and bruises. I, uh, I think I have 25 stitches on my chin and five front teeth that were gone out of one face first adventure. No way. Is it a right or a left? You know, it, it was a right, and I know that Michelle Janode lived at the pipeline at the time. Him and I were friends. And when I hit the bottom, I was kind of, how bad is it? And I remember Michelle had a big glass window at his house, so I ran up just straight up the sand and looked in the window and I went, yeah, that's not good. And I forget who was there. One of the other guys who surfed out there. And he ran me down to Kuhuku and got stitched up and got some caps on my teeth and off I went. I mean, before you even get up to Michelle's house, you feel with your tongue that your teeth are missing probably, so that's not a good sign. Yeah. yeah. I mean, everybody got lumps and bruises over there back then. Yeah. I'm sure they still do. It was, it was just part of it. You know, you're going to get hurt playing sports you're going to get hurt yeah doing whatever you do if you do it often enough right roger mentioned that his first board building epiphany came at country surfboards 
Things came full circle later in his career as he now carries the country surfboard's license and still makes plenty of boards under that iconic label. What I know is that it started in the late 60s and Mike Horak and uh, Turk, Mike Turkington and I believe Bill Stonebreaker was in on that too. They uh, kind of opened a shop there in, in Haleiwa. And I remember my first time there, they sold some brewers out of there and some Chuck Dents because of uh, Barry Kanayapuni was shaping for Chuck Dent at the time. I remember one time going through Haleiwa and seeing Al Chapman asleep on the hood of the car. And he had these big le- brown leather boots on. Like, I don't know what they were. And uh, he was just passed out on the hood of the car. It was 100 degrees outside. <laughs> just leather boots and, like, trunks or something? Yeah. It just it stuck in my head that, wow, it's no shore. Yeah. But, uh, the Wild West, man. It was. There was no police out there at that time. You yeah. got away with whatever you wanted. Right. I never really had a, a problem at all the years I was over there. I never really had a problem with the uh, locals or whoever was there because I just I kind of flew under the radar and I didn't think for a moment that anything there belonged to me oh okay I didn't think that the ways were mine I didn't think that the land or anything I was there visiting mm-hmm. no matter how long I was there and I was there probably longer than most mm-hmm. I was just visiting and so I got along real well I didn't have problems I know also know that you didn't go down to Cammy's Market on a Friday night after dark because you were probably going to run into some trouble if you did that. Mm-hmm. But um, what do you, do you think that that is the problem that people get into on the North Shore? Then is that they show up and expect a little bit of I don't know ownership. Back then it was different. I think uh, when I go there now and for the last twenty years, I I kind of stay and surf down in the Sunset area with Randy, and I don't venture out much. So most of the guys I'm surfing with, I knew 40 years ago. Right. So it's, it's not a problem. Back then though, I think there was some, some guys that came over that probably had some high expectations that had to be, you know, simmered down a little bit, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it, the busting down the door story that's been told and documented a lot, I mean, yeah. seems to really represent that. Yeah, it was, it, that was uh, a time when uh, they were trying to make a living out of surfing. Right. I remember I was on the beach at the first Pipeline Masters, and I think Army came in second place, and I think he got like 100 bucks or some shit like that. <laughs> and uh, Crazy. And... Uh, so who won? Uh, Jeff Hackman. Got it. And uh, now I think the guys just are getting picked to get in it. I don't know how much they make. Yeah. A lot. Even last place, it's yeah. like probably eight grand or something. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, it was a little skewed. That's funny. <laughs> but uh, no, it it uh, you kind of knew who to stay away from. Okay. Even you know, even now, if I go there. I kind of know who to stay away from. Mm-hmm. If you go anywhere, pick a spot. Go to Huntington Pier. Mm-hmm. You got to know who to stay away from. Yeah. Well, hunting. I mean, in the surf world, yeah, Huntington Pier. But also, just think about we have Compton and we have Watts, mm-hmm. and you and I know it's like that's right. I mean, that's ten miles away, maybe as the crow flies. Have you and I ever gone there in our life? You know, I mean, it's like we drive past it on the freeway, but you and I know. If you need gas, don't get off the freeway there to get gas. Yeah. That's just stupid. <clears throat> you know, there was always a pecking order at the surf spots, yeah. at the pipeline, or wherever wherever you were, there was a pecking order. And yeah. and if you understood that, then everything went smoothly. Mm-hmm. And there was a difference watching the, the name guys out there surf than the guys who wanted to make a name for themselves. And and the only reason I know this is because I was on the outside looking in, watching these guys surf. And, you know, the top name guys out there, they wouldn't take off on a wave that wasn't absolutely the best wave. Right. 
and they knew which they, they knew by looking at it which wave was going to do what mm -hmm. and it was a uh, pretty impressive to watch that um you talk about the north shore like an outsider looking in did you ever feel like you were an insider there I don't feel like I'm an insider anywhere. Really? Yeah, I just... Among the world of board builders, you don't feel like an insider? I think uh, the biggest problem somebody can do, especially in surfboards, is let their ego get in the way of their success. Okay. And if I ever thought that I had made it, then I probably wouldn't be achieving the few things that I am at this age. Mm-hmm. Um, it's important to me what my peers think about me what other people think about me I don't give a shit yeah. who do you view as your peers? Um, anybody who has ever done something in surfing for surfing or for surfboards who are still humble to this day and trying, still trying to achieve great things right it's it's funny. I I got an email last night from Pat Rawson, and he was congratulating me on my second win at the Icons of Foam, and that's very uplifting to me that a guy like Pat Rawson were friends, but he would waste two minutes of his life to send me an email congratulating me, and he said some nice things, mm -hmm. but if you turn the the clock back seven or eight years. Pat was in California, and he was at my house. We were, I was doing a board for, I forget, Pat was dropping off something, and I was going to help him out mm -hmm. doing a glass job. And he had just won the Brewer, tribute to Dick Brewer, I believe. And he actually said, you know, Roger, you should get in these. I think you would do okay in them. What Roger's referring to uh, Pat Ross and speaking about is the icons of foam shaping competition which i mentioned at the top of the show basically it's the focal point of the boardroom show and it's a shaping competition where they select one iconic surfboard design from history and give a 90 minute window and a few select tools to the shaping contestants and they attempt to recreate that iconic surfboard three years ago the icons of foam honoree was the recently passed Terry Martin, who happened to be a really good friend and colleague of Rogers. When I was out of the business for the four years, and when I got back in and found out that, um, well, I knew that Terry Martin had passed away because I was at the, uh, the deal for him. And, um, but they had done a tribute to Terry uh, at the Icons of Foam. I was, I was thinking, man, I sure would like to have been in that because I glassed a lot of boards that he had shaped and I thought that I would probably be able to do pretty well in that and just to honor Terry would have been just a, a great moment. While we're talking about peers, what was your relationship with Terry? He was a great man. I worked down at Hobie's uh, and he had worked there most of all of his life but I'd worked there uh, in the back and him and I kept about the same hours. We would just show up and work. And, he would uh, come in every day with a smile on his face. He was in the 70s, and he'd handshake, I don't know, seven, ten boards a day. Mm -hmm. It's like it was nothing. Yeah. Just like, and they were all the same. Right. Just amazing. Like a machine. Just amazing how, how hard he worked at that age and made it look like it was really easy. Yeah. It was really inspiring. It seems like... Um, <clears throat> the people who you respect most or that you view as your peers or that you would appreciate those compliments from like Pat don't so much have to do with what they've achieved in their career it more has to do with just their work output like how their work ethic I guess like if they're plugging away every day just doing it grinding it out you know it seems like that's something that you value it's hard work I do and I also value that People who are famous like that treat people who aren't famous as an equal. Right. In the surf world, that doesn't happen. Right. And it's a crime that a lot of the people 
in this business act as if they walk on water. Yeah. When in fact, for the most part, they can't put a, push a planer around a board. Right. Well, it, it does seem that way that there's an element of celebrity in surfing because it's glam, or it's, I don't know, it's sexy to the outside world looking in. Mm -hmm. And so you're right. There's guys who, for whatever reason, get a little bit of juice and they can live off that juice, you know, or, or the hype or whatever. But there's a huge disparity. There's a lot of people who are unsung heroes, like real quality craftsmen who don't have a bone in their body and in terms of interest in celebrity? You know, I, I'm grateful for everything. Uh, I'm grateful for that I'm be able to, healthy to where I can get back in the surfboard business and build surfboards. Yeah. I love building surfboards. I love going surfing. And that, that allows it, I mean, I could make a lot more money uh, doing other things, but this is what I, I really like at the end of the day. Let me ask you about kind of making money off of surfboards because you've experienced it over the course of um, 40 years, mm -hmm. I guess, and in different areas too, the North Shore, and you've traveled a bit to do it. Mm -hmm. um, how equitable was it in the 70s on the North Shore to make living, make a living off of building boards? And how has it evolved over time and how is it different today? It hasn't. <clears throat> I think in 1974, I was getting paid $10 to sand a board with a glass on fin or a box. And how long would that take? Yeah, I don't know. I don't remember. I mean, is it 10 bucks an hour essentially? Or 10 uh, bucks? It wouldn't take an hour, you know, okay. maybe maybe 35, 40 minutes. Okay. But in today's, and this was in 1974, when we had a house across from the beach for $300 a month, mm. a three-bedroom house, which we shared. Um, now in 2015, I think Sanders are making 22 or 25 bucks and that same house you're not going to get across the street from the beach <laughs> for less than probably about three grand a month. So no, it, it so the wages doubled and the inflation is like yeah multiplied. A times everybody 10. knows that surfboards are, are underpriced, but it's funny. I used to think why are they selling their boards for so cheap? And I was glassing some boards for Dale Velzi. He had some overflow boards in the late 80s, I think. Early 90s, I was glassing some boards for him. And he would tell me, you know, don't worry about a kid. Everybody wants to give boards away. It just is, you're always gonna have the guy coming into the business that wants to give a board away so he can make surfboards. Right. So, if you do a really good job and charge the money you feel necessary to make that project happen, you're going to have more work than you know what to do with. Yes. You don't have to pigeonhole yourself as the low guy. And so I got got that over that really quick when he said that. I was just like, okay, well, from the beginning, it's been like that. So there was always always somebody who wants to undercut somebody to get in the business or but also always somebody who's willing to pay a premium for a premium product yes of course yeah okay yeah. yeah in emerging surfboard markets there's a reverence for talented shapers from hawaii and california and rather than shipping a container of a hundred surfboards across the ocean it's often cheaper to purchase a plane ticket for that shaper and hire them to come build those 100 surfboards on location. Rogers benefited from this exchange and has been able to travel the globe with his planer and surf exotic locations while on the clock. We've been to Japan a lot. I don't I don't I don't glass boards while I'm in Japan. Usually I just go there and shape and um, I can be there from two weeks to a month, whatever it is, to do however many boards is necessary. I just pack up a suitcase full of tools and throw my templates in a snowboard bag and off I go. And then I was in South America, in Brazil. I was there for quite a while. What a great place. Really? Oh, man. 
I had so much fun surfing there. There's good waves there a lot. I was in a place called Macumba. And it's like giant bolsa chica. It's just big peaks bring way out. It's just such a great wave. So much fun. And um, I was working at a, a factory that a pro surfer from the 70s uh, from Brazil, Daniel Freeman, he owns it. And he had a, his, it was a big compound. He had his house on the property and it, um, shaping rooms, glassy and everything was right there. Mm -hmm. It was a good time. So how does that work? I mean, from a business standpoint, I assume they pay your travel expenses, fly you down, and then do they pay you just per board? Or? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Basically, they, they get you a ticket and they put you up and feed you the whole time. Cool. And then they just pay you a price per board, whatever, uh, whatever you've worked out in advance. Okay. And uh, that was a good time. I was down there a couple times. And uh, I just get up every morning and go surf and then walk to work and then try to surf again in the afternoon. But yeah. good time. Brazil's got some great waves. Yeah. A little dicey though sometimes. There's no there's no buffer from the rich to the poor. And I, I didn't experience anything, but I've I heard stories that you really have to be careful. Sure. But I didn't experience anything but a good time. Right. Again, I kind of flew under the radar and yeah. didn't make a big deal. I right. just went surfing and if a wave came to me, I took it. Right. <laughs> if somebody was there, I'd let them have it. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Seems like plenty to go around too back in the day. Yeah. And then I was in uh, Italy. That was an interesting trip because I was in Brazil. I was in Brazil for about a month and my wife called me and said, hey, you got to go to Italy to shape in this show in Florence. And I'm, I'm in Brazil, I'm just going, I, I can't leave, I'm here working. So anyway, push came to shove, so I, I, I think I had done 100 boards in Brazil and I had to do another 50, but I, just, I had to go. So I came back here for like three days and off I went. And I got to Italy and this, I was working for, um, it was the Bear Label, and it was inside this really old castle in Florence. You walk through a drawbridge, and then inside this was all these booths set up, and it was the biggest clothing show, trade show in Europe. It was called Petit, I think. We might have to look up the spelling on that. Okay. Petit show, huge. I mean, I don't know how many people were there, huge. And I was inside this glass shaping room, and um, I just sat in there and shaped all day. Crazy. And there would be people walk walking up and watching. I was in that thing all day. I don't know, six days. Wow. And then they shot me up to Genoa, which is close to the uh, border of France. And. Uh, did some promotional stuff up there. And then I went back to Rome and I actually shaped in Rome. They have a factory in Rome out by the airport. Okay. And I was told that there was a right point out there. You know, the low pressures come off of France and swing down the Mediterranean, so it's swell. Yeah. Did you surf at all when you were there? I In Genoa, they were surfing one day. Uh, it was not real good. I was just there doing some promotional stuff, so I just threw on some shorts and swam out there and just body surfed a couple just to be part of the action, but right. I didn't surf. Yeah. Fascinating. It was a, it was a really fascinating trip. Huh. Um, there's a surfing population. Yeah. Yeah, there was a film that came out last year that kind of documents some of that. So I was doing a lot of licensing projects at the time. I was doing... Dewey Weber's, my own label. It was a course of about, I don't know, through a lot of the 90s I did licensing projects. I did the uh, Blue Hawaii, Russ K. Makaha. Built a lot of boards for the guys in Hawaii. Would ship them from here, build them here and ship them. Um, 
Can you explain how licensing works? Well, for the Dewey Weber deal, Carolyn came to me and and uh, and asked if I would be interested in doing the project. So yeah, we we put together some models, and she obviously had a following. You know, Weber is a big name. Sure. If he would have lived, I mean, Jesus, there wouldn't have been a bigger longboard builder in the world, I don't think. I think he had the biggest name, or would have had. Um, so I would pay a fee. She would sell the boards and hand off the orders to me, and I, I would uh, build them. And I would pay a fee out of that, and I would get paid for the boards. We'd ship them, and, and it, was, it was fun. It was overwhelming after a while. The boards were really hard to build. They were really high-end boards, and and I was really, at the time, the only one in my factory that knew anything about color work or polishes, because it just came out of, uh, in the early 90s, there was no polishes going on to speak mm. of, not a lot, Yeah. or color work for that matter, transparency. Um, so that that kind of got overwhelming after a while. I figured how many boards we were building with my label and and her label, and then Blue Hawaii came in. They, Glenn Manami, I started building the uh, boards here in Cal. I was a California licensee. Then over the years, it was uh, Russ K. Makaha. Same deal. You just pay a fee. Yeah. So rather than Blue Hawaii, like taking orders, shipping the boards over to California, paying yeah. all that cost, it's easier just to have you build them here. Yeah. yeah, I was my own entity to where shops would order boards and I'd make them and, and pay Glenn a royalty. Right. It was funny. One day, I'm working in the factory and I don't know how many years ago it was. Maybe 94, 95. So 20 years ago. At the time, I thought, wow, this older guy walks in the factory and he's got a backpack. I don't know how old he was at the time. And he asked for me and I go... I'm him, and he goes, my name is Frederick Wardy, and I wanted to see if you'd be interested in building my label of boards, for Wardy Surfboards. And I thought, wow, that's pretty cool. Um, and at the time, the, the labels, the older labels from the 60s, there was a big deal. Uh, there was a following in, in Japan uh, for some of them, and here. And so I thought that was pretty cool, but he was a nice man too. We talked uh, several times, but we couldn't work out the deal because he had already promised the clothing part of it to a friend of his, and I wasn't willing to build the boards unless I got the clothing too, because that would that would make it worth it. Yeah, sure. But uh, well, I mean, the the board building is just labor intensive you know and yeah 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 that was a pretty cool moment that uh yeah i I think he lives in new york or i don't know this a long time ago yeah he was very pleasant though of course we are all aware that surfboard construction involves toxic chemicals and there are a lot of precautions one must exercise if this is your chosen line of work so you may have heard roger mention earlier in the show that he took a four-year hiatus from board building. I'd known this part of Roger's timeline, but I was never quite certain what the reasoning for it was. I, um, when Clark Foam closed, I got my hands on some blanks that uh, I think uh, after everything was said and done had some unreacted chemicals in them. And so I started having some health issue after about three months into the blanks. And it kind of just freaked me out. And uh, so I just stopped building boards. I sold my factory to uh, Tim Stamps. Was your ambition to just like get healthy at that point and then return to board building? Or did you just get freaked out and think to myself, yourself like, I'm out of here permanently, I'm going to retire? I had so much problem at the time. I thought I got to just get away from this to find out what the what was the cause of the problem. Okay. Um, it could have been me sanding surfboards in the '70s with a paper mask and no shirt. 
Sure. And it could have been, you know, anything. But uh, Or it could have been those new blanks that you were uncertain about. Yeah. So was it like respiratory issues or? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then um, about two years went by, now maybe a year. I started feeling, you know, everything's kind of back to normal. Uh, maybe a year and a half. So I went down and started working at Hobie's. Because I thought, well, I feel pretty good. Why not? And um, and I was that was 2007. And then in 2010, that's when I was in Brazil for the second time. And then I went off to Italy. And when I got back from Italy, I noticed uh, some lumps on my lymph nodes that weren't there. So then that kind of... Um, Went, wow, here we go again. So I jumped out of the business again because I thought, oh, shit, that's, I probably should have just stayed out the first time. And then I uh, was out for four years working uh, construction. Yeah. Building, just supporting my, my wife. And uh, yeah, I was pretty much out of shape. You know, I didn't surf much. And I don't know, about a year and a half ago, I was in Hawaii, uh, staying at Randy's and surfing, and I realized at that time, you know, I'm pretty freaking miserable working construction. And at this age, I should probably do what uh, is going to make me happy. Yeah. So I got back in the business, and it just started steamrolling. Looks like I got back in at the right time. Yeah. Everybody wants a custom board yeah just as roger re-entered the business he was selected to participate in the aforementioned 2014 icons of foam tribute to ben ipa for his sting surfboard that buttons made famous ipa and his son were on hand to judge the event and they deemed roger the winner this year, the honoree was Rusty, and the board was Aki's famous 1984 thruster. Roger, of course, won that event as well, and he did so over Chris Christensen, Tim Stamps, Dave Parmenter, Ward Coffey, and Stu Kenson. The reason why I was asking about winning the, the first one, and certainly with this one too, is maybe it doesn't dictate your business so much or change the way you do business, but... We were talking about peers and getting validation from peers and just a pat on the back of like, hey, good job. Right. And it is a very industry-driven competition. It doesn't have a huge influence in the market to the general public, right. but everybody in the industry pays attention to it, you know? So I feel like that has to validate your work in some way. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, uh, working with Rusty, uh, that, was, that was pretty interesting. That was not an easy board to shape. Yeah. That was not an easy board. There was a lot of stuff going on on that board. Yeah. He used a 6.5R. That thing has just under a half inch of crown in the deck. And I had to basically shape in reverse. I never shaped the deck of the board first, ever. But there was only three quarters of an inch tolerance in this to get to a finished product. So I just started chopping out the deck first thing and just getting it as flat as I could and then went to the bottom after that but uh, it worked out well but it wasn't uh, it wasn't an easy one to do right. at all yeah let's um, if I can re-traumatize you for a couple minutes let's talk about the uh, Ultimate Craftsman project for five minutes wow <laughs> um, obviously the boardroom show enlisted four guys to build kind of their ultimate expression of a surfboard whatever they thought that might be what did you build? I built a replica outline of a uh, 1967 Skip Fry Gordon and Smith. A really beautiful, beautiful outline on the board. But I put together a checkerboard stringer that had 3,400-year-old sequoia in it. I had 504 individual pieces. Yeah, that kind of sucked up about three months of my life. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I participated in some of that process. Yes, and you, you, you um, 
have built a lot of like checkerboard tail blocks in the past, essentially. So you had an idea to recreate that, but in the full length of the stringer, right? Yeah, I had I had I had an idea in my head, but I had no idea how hard it was going to be. And actually, uh, right when I bought the wood, which was not cheap, my wife asked me. She goes, "Do you think you can glue this that thing up?" And I go, "I have no idea." But I think a, a lot of things in life, you don't have to know how how it's how it's going to, how you're going to get from point A to point B. You just got to get moving past point A. Mm. And it's going to unfold. Mm. I think it's going to unfold. And it did. I just glued up a bunch of wood and started chopping at it. And it was a learning curve, but it it, uh, it went well. Yeah, it's a beautiful board. So you got, uh, how do you acquire 3,400-year-old wood? And I know sequoias are protected, you know, as part of the California park system or whatever. Yeah, so. this was a fallen tree that a mill in Sacramento had and uh, Josh Martin had told me about it and so I got a hold of them and inquired and my my first hurdle was not so much how, my, uh, how much the wood was I didn't even care what that was it was I needed a certificate of authenticity showing the the age of the wood okay to me to me that was the most important thing there's a lot of old growth redwood out there not a lot but but uh, 3,400 year, that, that kind of stuck in my head. Mm-hmm. And when they were able to supply me with that, I just went ahead and bought it okay. and just started mailing it. And um, obviously, so you got the checkerboard stringer and then you incorporated that into the fin as well. Yeah. So you've got this 68 skip fry kind of longboard with this one of a kind unique stringer. Had you ever seen a stringer like that before? Not all the way through the board. I okay. know that there were some checkerboard veneers in boards before. Okay. Uh, a lot of uh, a lot of boards that had the fancy stringer work in them in the '60s, like a Greg Knoll figure eight stringer. A lot of those were just routed in and veneered in, maybe okay. a half inch. They weren't all the way through the board. But this was actually the first one that I have seen or heard about. That went all the way through the board. Mm-hmm. I had to I glued, glued up nine foot six of six inch tall stringer, mm-hmm. and that allowed for me to catch the rocker at both ends. Okay, six inches. And I, I used the nine eight Y. I think the finish rocker I used on that was maybe a five and a half nose, five and a quarter nose, or something like that. So okay. there was plenty of room there to work with. Sure. And how much of um, that stringer is strictly aesthetic and how much are you anticipating any sort of flex dynamic in it or is it solely aesthetic yeah i it's 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 only there for looks because it uh you know it has t-bands on the on both sides of it which would stiffen it up and strengthen it but there's there's no flex involved in that in my brain yeah i was just trying to put it together and keep it indexed because it was called the ultimate craftsman. I just wanted to show something from beginning to end that somebody took a raw material and milled it, mm-hmm. glued it, mm-hmm. shaped it, and glassed it. Who's going to end up with that board? Are you looking to sell it or are you... I would assume that you've <coughs> received a lot of interest at the show from people who would be interested in something like that. What are your plans with the board? Well, I made a decision to build three boards like that or similar to that. But the stringer is is what is the focal point. I can build a gun out of it using that same stringer. I can build a nose rider out of it. But everything is based around that stringer. Right. So and so I'm only going to build three, and one is already built in 2015. And then in 2016, I'm going to build three of something new. Got it. And then 17, three of something new. And, yeah, so it, they are, they will be for sale and available. So kind of do a limited run, limited edition. A customer could have one of three of this 2015 project. And from a collector's standpoint, then 
maybe get one of 2015 next year, get one of 2016, get the 2017 sort of an idea. Exactly, and they won't be the same next year as the checkerboard stringer would just be for this year only. Right. There's only a limited amount of that wood. Right. I also thought about maybe next year not doing a checkerboard, but turning it on a diamond. Oh. Which is going to be a lot more labor intensive and possibly doing a couple offset stringers. I think that something like that would really look nice on a gun. Um, you know, it's kind of endless if, if uh, I'd be open for ideas too. Yeah. Interesting. So if somebody wants to acquire the one of three, I'm sure there's already been a lot of inquiries. If somebody wants to acquire the one of three, how do they get a hold of you? Yeah, they can just go to the website and get a hold of me there. Roger, Roger, Roger Hines Surfboards. Um, yeah, you know, it, it's, a, it's a unique board, so it's not for everybody. It's a rider, number one, but I don't know how bad somebody wants to pay a significant amount of money for a, a board to ride in the ocean, but I would love to do that. Yeah. Well, you shaped another board that was basically a replica of this, but without the checkerboard stringer, yeah. and you and I have each ridden it. Yeah thing works beautifully yeah so absolutely so it's kind of like i guess if they wanted to they could buy the more expensive checkerboard version if they wanted to have a wall hanger collectible type piece and if you actually want to ride the board buy one with a bass stringer in it or whatever good point yeah because we did that one the same day we built them both the same time yeah so they were built to Side by side. Side by side. So yeah, that one rides really well. Yeah. With Roger's reemergence into the industry and following the success of his first Icons of Foam win, Roger built a new factory from scratch. Just a couple miles from his hometown of Seal Beach, California, Roger used his 40 years of experience shaping around the world to engineer precision lighting, ventilation, racks, and just overall space to create and fulfill his work. It's kind of a dream factory. There's a lot of room in here. My wife has an office where she can do the uh, the website and sell t-shirts and and take care of business. And it's uh, I have everything in here. I'm shaping room, sanding, polishing, everything. It's it's a nice working. It's a good it's a good working environment. The temperature stays. Uh, mid-70s in here pretty much all the time. It's a concrete building. Mm-hmm. So it's a pleasant uh, pleasant area to gloss. It's yeah. nice. And that should be stated. I mean, the board, you build the board from beginning to end. Yeah, right? every one of them. I hand shape everything. And, uh, you know, I forget. Somebody asked me uh, a few days ago if I was ever uh, on the shaping computer. I was in the early 90s. We were doing a 1,000 boards a year back then. And I was earlier earlier on when there wasn't a lot of guys on it. I think I did uh, two or three months of the shaping computer. And good or bad, it wasn't for me. Mm-hmm. It kind of, it just didn't work for my needs. But I think uh, the bigger companies who are producing, you know, like Lost or Rusty or CI, I mean, that's, you couldn't do your business without a computer. Right. I mean, you have to have, you know, the same board over and over and over, no matter no matter what. And so I think uh, the bigger companies need it, but it's not for me. I I hand I hand shape and glass everything myself. Yeah, excellent. Um, what's your current relationship like with surfing? How often do you surf? Well, I still try to surf every day, but it's a, kind of a crappy time of year to be a surfer in California. Um, I still try to surf every day, depending upon my workload. Yeah. What was the last surfboard that you rode? It was a board that I made when I was in Brazil in 2010 for a team guy, shaped in glass and real. And he came through California about six months ago to pick up some new boards. And I kept this thing. And... Um, it was a 9-4, kind of a longboard gun. Rides well. So I rode it uh, last Friday or Saturday I was out. Cool.
RogerHinesSurfboards.com is his website, and of course, SurfSplendorPodcast.com is our website. We'll have images of Roger and a lot of his boards that he discussed in today's show. And then, of course, if you ever order a board from Roger, they're made with his two hands from beginning to end. All right. Thank you for tuning in. I hope that you enjoyed today's show. This is David Scales for Surf Splendor reminding you to shred on. Shut up, baby.